He had sex on the grave of the widow of a man he hated. He had wet dreams about the queen. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Simulator, a series of short conversations about video games with interesting people who play them. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and in this episode, I discuss the excellent comedy astrology game Astrologaster with my guest Catherine Neal. I'm Catherine, and I um, I'm the narrative designer slash writer for Astrologaster, and um, I do other things as well. But that's what we're talking about, so that's how I shall present myself. Astrologaster was made by a team of people at independent developer Nyam Nyam, and was designed and directed by Jennifer Schneiderite. But I wanted to talk to Catherine about the writing to find out how she managed to squeeze history, astrology, and comedy into a game. Content warning, this episode contains mention of miscarriage. We avoid major spoilers for Astrologaster, but if you wanted to go into the game without any idea of how it plays, who the characters are, or what events took place during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, then you might want to go and play it before you listen to this conversation. So, I think I've got like a few questions. Oh, a few. Mm, I've got like 20 questions. Do they involve like mineral, vegetable... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> animal style because that's actually maybe you could interview someone about their game using our 20 questions format so like to learn about a new game that's just been announced so just be like is it a role-playing game yes or no yeah 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 and then see if you could guess exactly what you know does it have zombies does it have hmm. is it you know multiplayer is it i feel like that would be relatively easy in the current games industry where everything is the same that's how you could conclude the interview. You could say, well, this just proves the, um, this is a shocking indictment on the state of the industry. Especially if you manage to like just interview three different people and, and you manage to deduce the game within five questions or something. So this is the new review scores, is how many questions yeah. from 20 questions it takes to guess what your game is. That makes it more interesting. Like Astrologaster, for instance, you probably would not be able to guess in 20 questions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I hope so. I mean, people have been making jokes about in the comment section on the the Guardian review. A couple of people made gags about there being so many comedy astrology 16th century <laughs> games that it's just too hard to keep up with. Or that joke had already been made, but it hadn't been made on the in the Guardian comment section. So that was cool. That's a badge of honor. If you had to describe the game in kind of one sentence, how do you describe it? It's an astrological comedy game in which you play a 16th century astrologer who was a real historical figure and you guide him to help his clients with their professional, medical, uh, emotional um, and financial problems and political problems and romantic problems, any problem. For anyone listening who hasn't played how do you actually go about solving your clients' problems? Well, the short answer is you do astrology, and it's real astrology with an asterisk. So <laughs> it's a simplified experience. We use real star charts from the dates and times of the consultations that we present you with. And um, so you look at the stars in the night sky, like an astrologer does, that the night sky is divided up into 12 houses, etc. And you choose a combination of parts of the sky, the houses, to inform the answer that you give your client. 
So, for example, on one part of the sky there might be Venus um, in the house of um, finances or something and there might be the house of business, there might be Actually, that, that's, that's a bit close to the House of Finance, isn't it? But there are many houses. There are 12 of them. Um, <laughs> and then you choose a combination of them. And that combination um, forms the answer that Simon Foreman, the astrologer, will give to his clients. You're telling Simon Foreman what to say. But you don't know exactly what he's going to say to his clients because it's sort of mediated. Sorry to use that word. But Guardian readers would like that word, wouldn't they? <laughs> in, the com- in the comment section, they get into that word. But what I mean is you indirectly guide the answers. So um, you might not know what house one plus house three plus house seven is really going to turn out to be in combination. But that's you indirectly guide him by choosing parts of the night sky, essentially, from an astrological chart that's a, it's a, that's a real chart, which made it really hard for me as the narrative designer. Because <laughs> I had to come up with like you know there's a a foreigner in the house of families and stuff. What does that mean? Like your husband is having it off with a foreign person? I don't know. Oh, interesting. So your writing of the narrative was constrained by astrology. So what things you are able to say with astrology? Did that make it a challenge, or did that almost help to narrow down what you were going to say? It was a challenge, but yeah, as you indicated, it was kind of like um, a creative aid in a way. And when you think about it, you know, throughout art history, I mean art as in, you know, music, art, literature, creatives have been using random numbers, for example, to um, come up with ideas. Like Mozart had this dice game that he used, for example, like the Surrealists used games and you know elements of randomness um sort of like playful ways of coming up with their ideas yeah there's a lot of kind of evidence that i guess uh, of of creativity coming coming from you know just rolling the dice so um i'm not saying that astrology is rolling the, the dice but it's a system you know it's like a system with some may say uh random elements um in there and it sort of so it, it forces you to think and I think, you know, tarot cards, similar thing, you know, it's like and maybe there's an idea in your subconscious that is a good idea, but it like picking a card or seeing a planet in a certain house um, lets that idea out. It's like a prompt. That's so interesting. And given, like you say, astrology is a system, why do you think we don't have millions of astrology games already? And where did the idea come from for you to make one? It actually didn't come to me. It came to um, Jennifer Schneiderite, the game's designer and director. And she was at a seminar given by the Wellcome Trust where they sort of did this sort of speed dating for scientists and game developers to share ideas and see if they want to work with each other. Well, it was really the scientists sharing ideas. And <laughs> there um, at this seminar presenting research was Dr. Lauren Cassell. Um, she's at the University of Cambridge and she is, have you seen Discovery of Witches, the TV show? I haven't, I'm afraid. Well, there's this really popular series of uh, like historical romance books 
the first one is called Discovery of Rich Witches, and I can't remember the, the titles of the other ones, but it's like um, super popular. And they've recently um, made a TV show based on the first book TV series called Discovery of Witches. And the main character is this young American researcher who spends a lot of time at the Bodleian Library in Oxford going through the Ashmole manuscripts, which is a collection in the basement of the library of like a cult and and like witchcraft and like weird stuff basically this guy called ashmole has been like big chunk of his life collecting occult weird kind of mysterious manuscripts dating back hundreds of years and then he donated it to the oxford library and researchers have spent years kind of just going through this stuff and the main character of this book that's what she does and she discovers some mystical occult text that's important to witches or important to demons also i don't know but she's a very glamorous american young academic right and she discovers makes this amazing discovery in the bodleian library in the ashmal manuscripts and then a really hot vampire comes and seduces her and and he's played by matthew goodge in the tv series so he's really hot I can't believe I haven't seen this. I love hot vampires. Like he's sort of posh hot. Like the poshness slightly puts me off, but mm. he is Matthew Good and he is hot. And so basically, our origin story for the game is very, very, very similar because Dr. Lauren Cassell is American. She is blonde, like the woman who stars in Discovery Witches. She did go to Oxford University 25 years ago to look through the Ashmole manuscripts and she made this a most amazing discovery. And the discovery was that these kind of chicken scratchings and weird little symbols and stuff that had been lying in, in, this, in this collection in the basement of the library for 400 years were astrological charts. <gasps> 30,000 of them, I think, or 60,000. I don't know. She keeps on, I don't know, like she, she's digitizing <laughs> them. But she realized that these were Dr. Simon Foreman's case notes for his patients, written sort of in slightly bad Latin and stuff, but these kind of crisscrossy charts of astrological, like star charts and like interpretations that no one knew what they were for until this young American just like the star of um, Discovery Witches. But you know what the difference is between Dr. Lauren Cassell and the main character of a Discovery Witches? Is it that there's no hot vampire? Exactly. Uh, so what happens at the beginning of a Discovery Witches is that, you know, this, this young doctor, I mean this young, you know, doctor of philosophy, researcher, she's looking through the Ashmore manuscripts. In the library, it's all very spooky and exciting and everything. And she's like, oh, this is like, I'm going to publish lots of papers on this. It's going to make my research career, whatever. And then Matthew Good, the hot vampire, comes waltzing in and then does eyes at her. And then basically that's the end of her research career. I mean, it's the beginning of a romantic drama, right, uh -huh. involving witches and demons and, you know. But Dr. Lauren Cassell took a different path 25 years ago because she was not seduced by a hot vampire. Instead, mm -hmm. she had a proper research career. She did not need a man <laughs> slash vampire to... <laughs> lead her astray and off into some other life she spent 25 years going through these manuscripts you know the, the case books and finding out about 16th century medicine because they're the oldest medical records we have they just happen to be astrology charts but they are also incredibly important amazing and so she met jennifer at the seminar thing and she got up and said stuff like 
Oh, Simon Foreman, super important, medical history, blah, 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 blah. He had sex on the grave of the widow of a man he hated. He had wet dreams about the queen. <laughs> um, and Jennifer thought, wow, that's hilarious. We can make a game about this. Amazing. When it came time to do research for the game, because obviously it is based on true events and real people, what was the process like? How on earth did you tackle that? Well, I mean, there was the original kind of stuff, the initial kind of kind of work with Jennifer and Lauren, you know, they met up and talked about this kind of stuff and Jennifer sort of came up with a sort of shape of the game and stuff. But I came on a bit later and then I... Personally, I, you know, I read books. There are biographies out there about him. There's also the Casebooks project, Lauren Cassell's project online, where they've digitized a lot of cases. So you can like look up cases and the topics of cases um, and see the connections between the different clients. And they often had, just like in the game, they often had sort of first or second degree of separation kind of things, Mm -hmm. relationships. I mean, he had husbands and wives coming to him and he had, you know, friends of friends and that sort of thing. But the research involved a lot of reading. Um, I also had to research the period a lot because the period during when he was practicing was a really interesting period, the 1590s um, and then the early, you know, the 1600s. Queen Elizabeth, you know, she died during that period. There was, you know, plagues happening, the Spanish Armada, the gunpowder plot, you know, um, mm. 5th of November, remember, remember. So lots of political machinations going on. So, yeah, I needed to – that stuff is in the game and all the dates are correct just so that there's no Reddit subreddit on how we got all the facts. I hope there will be a subreddit, <laughs> like, with nerdy, obsessed people who want to prove how our history is completely wrong. I would love that. There are always men on the internet willing to tell you that you got a date wrong. Yeah, I wasn't going to say men, but I'm glad you said it. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be mansplained about that because that would mean people would care. That's another constraint. That was another sort of, I won't say annoying, but difficult, challenging constraint was like, we've got to work with the stars for that particular date and time. But also the constraints of history. Like, so if we're going to have a case about, you know, the gunpowder plot, um, which we do, we do have that stuff in there or the the death of Queen Elizabeth or that, that kind of, or the Spanish Armada, you know, we had to, have dates and times for the consultations that match the history and what planets are they going to give us at that time, got to deal with the planets, you know what I mean? It's like a lot of trade-offs. And Wait, so the astrology is accurate as well? The right planets are in the sky at the right times? Oh, yeah, that's why it was difficult. I mean, tough shit if, you know, if there's such and such a planet in such and such a house at such and such a time. I had to interpret that correctly. So, you know, Mars is a young man or, or a, a male child or, or aggression or something. And, you know, if, if it's in the, the house of travel or something. And Jennifer, like, she'd be like on my back kind of like, you've got to be stricter about that. You know, that doesn't really mean, so she kept me honest. I think it would have been far easier but a different result if we just made this shit up. Mm-hmm. That's an incredible achievement, though, to base it on accurate astrological readings. Well, and, and it was because, t- I mean, Jennifer had to find this data from the 16th century and then she made she made a tool, like a software tool, 
for me to use to f- find these charts on the particular days and times. So it's like, okay, well, Spanish Armada came in this week, in this year, and I want this client to, you know, ask a question about such and such, and I want these kinds of answers, but, oh, you know, can I find these? Oh, maybe that's a weird answer. I'll put Like it took like a day to do each chart for me, like to work out the chart. And when you come to give your patients answers in the game, so often there are multiple answers that you can get Simon to choose from. Is there such a thing as a wrong answer and a right answer? Or is it more based on what the patient wants to hear or what reflects what's actually happening? It's a combination. So so the patient might want to hear something initially, but most patients, you know, they want to hear they want to hear the truth. So so you often kind of find that um you might have to tell them bad news um and they depending on the character of the patient, they might be a bit grumpy about that or in denial at first, but then later they might give you a big boost and thank you mm-hmm. because what you said turned out to be correct. And Mostly the strategy, well, sometimes it's kind of, sometimes it's a matter of listening to what the patient says, like a good doctor, um, <laughs> and picking up sort of clues or, or even the blindingly obvious of what they say about what their condition is or what their problem is. And then sometimes they don't reveal everything. Sometimes there are some symptoms that they might have or some things that they that are clearly relevant to the problem that they're not saying, but it's sort of obvious in their body language or something. Um, and the chart, sometimes that's, you know, you can use the information from what they've just told you to make a sensible choice in the chart. But actually the probably the more important strategic stuff is what you hear from other clients, the gossip and the hints you get from other clients that you can use for your clients. Is it like um, some of these clients they sort of know each other um and they might even be married so like medical ethics weren't so good in those <laughs> days yeah so confidentiality wasn't really he mm-hmm. didn't, it wasn't very confident and you can see this in his case books like for example and this case isn't in the game so it's not a spoiler but for example one of his clients was shakespeare's landlady and shakespeare's landlady had a best friend who ran a wig shop like sold wigs and I think either he's got both of them as clients or he's got one of them and the the other person's husband but they're best friends anyway and so one of them comes to him and says should I've had a proposal from my best friend to, to go into business with her and have a big wig shop turn our wig business into this big business um, should I do this is this a good idea and Simon in the case books um, you see that Simon says uh no, not such a good idea. Did he say that because of the stars? Or did he say that because his other client, the best friend or the husband, told him confidentiality that she is shagging her best friend's husband? So basically the two best friends and one of them is shagging the husband uh-huh. of the other of the best friend, but they don't know. And so like he knows that she he she can't potentially can't hundred percent trust her best friend, and so mm-hmm. she shouldn't go into business with her. Um and so we've kind of put that aspect into the game where, yeah, I mean, you know information that, and it's not magic and it's not from the stars, but you do, it's because you, <laughs> you're privy to it. Also, you, I mean, you can get characters killed, just a couple. <laughs> I didn't know that. 
Yeah, there's one one character that makes certain choices you can get him killed. He's a particularly annoying character. Is he um, the one who keeps falling in love with different ladies? Yes. <laughs> okay. One of the best things about Astrologaster is finding out the repercussions of your advice. Does that make it quite a difficult game, for instance, to exhibit? What was that process like? Because I saw it at a couple of events and and I remember liking the mechanic, but not really understanding what the point of the game was until I actually had the full game in front of me when it was finished. So did you ever have problems with that along the way? Yeah, I think we needed to sort of... Um... People ask that question a lot. Um, I mean, one thing we did have in the demo version of the game was um, both Alice Blagg and her husband, Thomas Blagg. They, they were real clients of Foreman as well. Um, and we showed a little bit that you could use information from Thomas Blagg to help Alice Blagg as a little taste of of that. But, yeah, it's kind of hard because relationships between people are not very clear, not as clear-cut as killing someone or not killing someone so, yeah, and in real life, people aren't necessarily going to take your advice or sometimes they will or sometimes they will just do what they want to do anyway. So to get that that messy human stuff in there, it's it's like a, I think it's a bit of a trade-off between that and, 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 and gameplay at, at times because I guess it's like economics, you know, human beings don't always do don't always act in their own self-interest and they're not predictable and they're not always rational um, and you can't control their behavior like a perfect system. Right, like it feels like video game players are constantly clamoring for better choices and consequences in their games. But maybe what you've done here is so much more realistic than the kinds of things we're used to seeing in games that people almost don't realize the system. Like because you can't really obviously tell what's happening you know i kill that person so they're dead because it's less obvious to the player they maybe don't feel as satisfied at first until they've spent more time with it yeah the predictability you know like i will do x and i will get rewarded by the consequences for x every time i do x is not yeah we don't have that i I suppose it's like that con the contract with the player like you know in game design you're often told to be really fair to the player and not betray the player's trust which i think is a good <laughs> good principle but then like in real in real life you know relationships aren't so transactional it's like i was really nice to this girl and she cried on my shoulder i let her cry on my shoulder and listened to all her problems and i made her cookies and stuff but she won't sleep with me like it's not fair mhm see so your game friend zones people um I, maybe a little bit <laughs> Yeah, and we do have like a friend zoning kind of narrative thing going on. Right, because your Dr. Foreman really likes to sleep with his patients. Is that historically accurate? Oh my God. Yeah, I really actually toned down the character. Like I've been told in the past, and it's probably true, that I I tend towards nasty, unsympathetic characters. Um, and for minority people, they they really get off on that. For most people, it's like a little bit too dark, mm-hmm. and so this for this game, I I th- thought you know I'm gonna be more positive and I'm gonna you know work a bit harder to make characters sympathetic. I mean, it's still kind of dark, but oh my god, if I had been absolutely 100% true to Simon Foreman, the man, the real man, short answer to the question, he shagged so many of his 
patients. And I don't think he was like um, a sexual predator. I mean, there's no evidence to suggest as far as I know that he that he indulged in sexual assault or, or anything. Mm. But he certainly tried it on um, and he got it as well. I mean, he he must have – he was a, not an attractive man. He was very ugly. <laughs> Do you really work on making him uglier? I think in games there's a real tendency to make characters like – a bit too nice looking but we had to really work with our artist to like our art director and say you know because he's actually uglier in real life in in all in many ways i think in his character and the way he looks and stuff but he must have been really charming because oh boy did he sleep with a lot of women and they slept with him they were happy to or i suppose if if he had a lot of patients to him saying oh, i'm having problems with my sex life then he offered himself as a solution i guess there's a kind of um vulnerability there well yeah the only man in your life who'll listen to you is this guy and yeah i mean it must have been really seductive i think i think his talent was because you know because he he didn't have any of the advantages that like you know real real doctors um you know they're often from quite wealthy backgrounds that allowed them to go to oxford or cambridge to get their medical degree um but he he was completely self-taught. He he was a real underdog, and he read a lot of books. He was very very intelligent, but he had a real connection with common common people, normal mm. people um, that I think these other doctors didn't. I don't know if you've got up to this bit yet, but we have like a client who exp- who says, "Well, you know, people call you a quack." So I wasn't sure if I was going to come and see you, but I've had it up to here with these other doctors because they tell women what to do. Like they're dismissive and they're patronizing. And I'm sick of it and I want to try something new. I want a doctor who listens to me. I mean, we've got a lot of overt political stuff in there, I I guess. But some of the stuff in there that's not so obvious is the experiences of female friends and myself, but mainly female, female friends and women I've met and women I've talked to about their experiences with doctors and hospitals and the way women can have their pain um, and their issues, um, minimized for example like i had this um three kilo abdominal tumor in me for like a few years it was like the size of a rugby ball and when women have abdominal pain it's like oh well you're a woman you have abdominal pain you know (laughs) (laughs) i mean whether that was true or not that's how i felt and i was misdiagnosed for years maybe it's not necessarily a gender thing but there is such a thing as a gender pain gap it is proven that women get taken less seriously and they have their complaints dismissed more easily. And so I put that into the game. Like, he doesn't necessarily behave well all the time, Dr. Foreman. But, yeah, there are things about the medical experience, like little things I try to put in there. Not tried, really. I mean, it just comes out. It's like I'm a human being who happens to be a woman. Like, this is what it's like to be with a doctor. I just put it there, you know. Yeah. You also have quite a few kind of knowing jokes in there about, you know, being a woman. So like things like the woman who wants to write poetry and just kind of how ridiculous that is, the idea that a woman could write poetry. How important do you think it is that people who play the game know that it was written by a woman in order for them to accept that humour and to know that it's satire? Oh, actually, that's a really good because I got in trouble on a game where the player character... I was written in first person, was a woman. I mean, it was not, you know, not so, hi, I'm a woman. Um, but, you know, <laughs> like I wrote it as a, as a woman and the character was a woman. But um, 
you know, what seems to happen is that people, if you don't gender something, they assume it's a, you know, a man. And my female character was, my female protagonist was kind of bitchy towards everyone, like a misanthrope, but but also towards women in that way that women can be bitchy about other women. Um, mm-hmm. Because that's, well, <laughs> that's, that's real life, right? Um, but yeah, some people took it as like, this character is saying really sexist things about, you know, it's really, it's like, but it was clear that they thought it was a male character. So yeah, that's a really good question because it's like a lot of the stuff is obviously, uh, well, I think it's obviously ironic and sarcastic, but maybe that's not, yeah, maybe I allow myself to delve into all this gender politics as I'm a woman. It's like, I can say what the hell I want. I feel like I can say what the hell I like kind of to, to it. Whereas like if a man, I don't know, like maybe a man wouldn't feel so comfortable yeah, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, no, I think especially in the current climate where people are very kind of cautious or a lot of people are very cautious, I think people might be quick to not read the whole situation properly and, and maybe jump to, oh, there's, there's a sexist joke in this game and just assume that a man wrote it. Yeah, I, I worry about because I've, I've sort of moved gradually in my career over to the writing side bit by bit. I started out as a programmer in games and sound designer many years ago. And, um, yeah, the closer you get to game, and I went moved into game design and now write, you know, like it's like it's, it's getting scarier because it's like what I'm doing is more putting myself out there and also t- at the scary edge of like, you know, potentially pissing people off um, mm-hmm. edge of things. Because um, in real people are assholes in real life. You know, like people are not. Like I put in lines from ex-boyfriends in this game. <laughs> I mean, behind closed doors, I mean, you know, people can be nice people um, and they, you know, they can be ni- perfectly nice human beings, but in relationships, people are bastards. And I include myself. I mean, I think just because a character is an asshole doesn't mean the writer endorses what that character says or the player needs to endorse what that character says. Or, mm. And I know humor is a bit because it's like, what are we laughing at? The intention, and I hope this is clear, but it might not be for some people, and I suppose you can't please 100% of people, but intention is to satirize the sexist and the sexism. One of the things that I found quite surprising, although maybe I shouldn't have, was that quite early on in the game, one of the characters mentions, although not in so many words, having had miscarriages. And I don't think I've ever seen that in a game before. I don't know about you, but was it was it difficult to make that decision or was that just something you thought, no, I've definitely got to include this? I forget how in games, games is really held to different standards than TV and film. Like mm-hmm. I think if it were film or TV, the things that are taboo or sensitive or tricky might be seen in a different light in in games versus TV and in film, I mean, it, the the miscarriage stuff was was in there kind of for two reasons. Firstly, because Avis Allen, she's a real she's a real person, um, and she was one of his clients, but was basically the love of his life. Um, and she did she had so many miscarriages, and it was a real tragedy for her. And that was a really defining part of her character. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. she'd seventeen or something. I mean, it was I can't remember, but also because childbirth. And problems with childbirth was a big theme in medicine at the time. And Dr. Lauren Cassell, the researcher who didn't get off with a vampire, (laughs) she was like, you know, got to have all these women's issues in there. We probably put less 
women's issues in there than there were actually in his case, but, you know, proportionately we probably could have put more in. But, you know, childbirth, problems around childbirth, trying to have a child, et cetera, losing children was a massive theme in medicine. Where did the idea come from to have songs to introduce the characters? I think it was like a group, a sort of group decision, but my... My agenda, obviously, as the narrative designer is to, like, um, use the whole cow. Like, my agenda is to push narrative, 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 narrative. Mm -hmm. That's my unashamed, you know, bias. Like, got to squeeze some narrative out of everything um, is my point of view. Um, (laughs) I don't care if it's good for the project or not. (laughs) Like, it's going to be good for this. Story, story, story. (laughs) Plus, you know, Andrea and I, I mean, we hadn't met before the project. Jennifer, like, met um, Andrea at, um, through the BAFTA, actually. And it turned out that Andrea and I share a love of early music. I actually did my degree in music performance and, and composition. And I used to be an early music singer, shopping malls, weddings, um, kind of thing. Amazing. I didn't know that. Uh, it didn't go very far, but um, yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a music snob as long as it's before before the 1800s. <laughs> so madrigal, you know, English Elizabethan madrigal. I mean, it's a it was a golden age for the madrigal in England at that time in the late 16th century. So like it made sense from that point of view because it's life was kind of expressed at that time through pop songs, and the pop song of the time was a madrigal, and. Yeah, so we just, like, really went for it. And me and Andrea, like, I did the lyrics, obviously, but we sort of really, you know, worked together on um, bringing the characters alive and you really got into sort of expressing the characters. And, yeah, we put in some contemporary themes in there as well, like, um, you know, failing up and a bit of bitterness in there, a bit of class warfare in there. (laughs) And a great way to throw in a load of euphemisms as well. Um, you mean like sexual, sexual, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the, uh, the la 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 stuff. Oh yes. And that's cut. They kind of did, like, so, um, really famous magic all the time. Thomas Morley. Um, now is a month of May when Mary lads are playing la 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 each with his bonny lass upon the greeny grass. la 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 Oh, there's a, there's this one which actually uses onomatopoeia to simulate humping. <laughs> like up and down, up and down, she wandered. Up and down, up and down, up and down. Up and, like the actual words are saying that she wandered up and down a hill. Uh huh. Like to meet her boyfriend, but like the voice leading and stuff of the, of the music, it's it sounds like sex, like and that's quite deliberate apparently. I mean, they were quite dirty, like these magicals at the time. So we use the same kind of tech, you know, inspired by those kind of techniques, like rhyme that we just kind of hold back on and just replace with fa la 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 like I did have the c word in there but you'll be proud of me because I rewrote the verse so that we just go as far as the f word but not the c word it's a really good rhyme with the c word I love the assumption that I would be proud of you like I'm a person who would never ever use the c word no no i mean proud of me as in you know like it's a literary achievement for mm-hmm. me to like change it okay maybe i meant that no well i don't know yeah yeah maybe i was proud of me because i was like you know when you have to kill your darlings or something and you're like i'm gonna kill this but i'm gonna replace it with something better like that's the challenge and so i actually felt like i was i was proud because i felt like actually this is a better verse 
than it was when it rhymed, you know, like um, kick her in the, you know, like that, you know, I, 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 I replaced it with something better and I felt good about that because it was better and still dirty. Kick her in the fa-la-la-la-la. <laughs> yeah, because I felt like, you know, like we talk about male genitalia quite a lot mm-hmm. and we make jokes about it, but it's actually, you know, like if it's a woman getting annoyed with another woman, when you're going to reference sexual jo- you know, it doesn't pass the Bechdel test. Women getting nasty with other women I think is like, I really like that material in TV and film and games. I I feel like it's underexplored. Final digression. The first writing I ever did was on Pony Friends 2. It's a pony game. I fucking hate horses, but <laughs> I did the research. I designed the quest system and I wrote all the quests for Pony Friends 2 and I was the only woman on the project. And then I left to go to France because I like France and I like cheese and stuff. But... Apparently, after I left, like, the guys were sitting around going, wow, but this is a game for girls. Like, we want to make them feel good. Like, there seems to be, like, a rivalry between the pony club captain and the player. Like, it just, that seems a bit mean. <laughs> and and this is, this is like, for 11 to 14-year-old girls. And I'm, I felt like, oh, my God, do you not know girls? <laughs> oh, there seems to be a rivalry between the hot guy and the po- at the pony store, right? The whatever the fucking some the store that sells pony equipment, like shouldn't he be really nice to her instead of challenging? You know, like like God no, do you know nothing about teen romance? It's like <laughs> you see it on TV. There's plenty of women like and young girls like having spats on TV and stuff. Mm-hmm. What? Why? Why was this? You know, group of dudes who are like. But girls are nice to each other and they give each – and then, then remember in the 90s there was that girl game kind of phase briefly in the 90s where it's like you'd have games for girls, specifically for girls. It would be like all hearts and flowers and unicorns. Mm-hmm. And then you'd do something and be like, you are a special person. Yay, friendship. It's like, I've, what? <laughs> Whose experience is this based on? <laughs> I know. Like me and my friends at that age, we were reading Barbara Taylor Bradford and Stephen King and like, you know, like in the girl stuff, like, or, you know, or even Babysitter's Club, you know, Babysitter's Club, mm-hmm. like, or Judy Bloom books and stuff. Girl stuff is like mm-hmm. socially sophisticated, you know, one-upmanship manipulation, you know, like, I don't know, but also in a good way as well. Not fucking like getting affirmed all the time. Oh, well, you lost that challenge, but, you know, you're still a good person. Like, fuck no, you don't want that. <laughs> Anyway, that's the end of my digression. That's okay. I think that's the end of the interview. If you want to hear more conversations like this one, please subscribe to Talking Simulator in your favorite podcast app. We got a lovely review of our first episode on Apple Podcasts, and we'd love to see more if you've got five minutes to add your own. You can also tweet us your thoughts at TalkingSimPod. I'm at Jerrica Weber, and Catherine is at haikus underscore by underscore kn. Our music is by Jazz Mickle. You can find her at Jazz Mickle. Talking Simulator is edited by Lemmington's loveliest audio person, Dan Parks. If you need to make something sound good, you can find him at Dan C. Parks with an E. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Talk again soon. Okay. Wow, I really can't eat cake while I interview people. Um... Especially with the video, because it makes people jealous. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but you did put all the effort into making that cake, so you, know, mm. you deserve it. <laughs>